0: So over the next few weeks, uh, over the next few weeks here of the Easter season, we're going to be spending our sermon time in the psalms that are appointed for that particular day. And as we turn to this uh, sort of mini-series through some selected psalms, I hope and I pray that this series is challenging. I hope and I pray that it's uplifting. I hope and I pray that it is grace-filled. The psalm appointed for today, the second Sunday of Easter, as we've read together, is Psalm 133. It's a very short psalm, and perhaps by the end of this sermon, you'll be wondering how in the world I managed to pull 45 minutes out of three verses. Only 45, Jeff. I edited. This psalm is a bit of a puzzle. In this psalm, Psalm 133, the psalm attributed to David, a simple fact is stated in verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Anyone with siblings, anyone with children cannot possibly argue with that. You cannot possibly say otherwise if you have an older brother or a younger brother or an older sister, or a younger sister, if you have children, you know that life in a family is good and it's pleasant when the family members dwell in unity. This psalm, however, is not about a family unit in terms of a mom and a dad and kids. This psalm is about a family that's much larger than a single family unit, as it is about the collected people of Israel. And by extension, through Jesus Christ, it is about Jesus church. So how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. To describe this good and this pleasant unity, David uses similes that are, to be perfectly honest with you, a little bit puzzling to me personally. A simile is a figure of speech involving the comparison of one thing with another thing of a different kind. It's used to make a description more emphatic or vivid. So if I were to say that we have a dog at home who is uh, like a bag of hammers, that means she's dumb, right? <laughs> and she is dumber than a bag of hammers. She's very sweet. If I were to say, wow, wow. That person is as brave as a lion. We recognize that person is not a lion, and yet we're extolling the bravery of that individual. If we said that person is crazy like a fox, we recognize that human person is not a fox in themselves, but the behavior manifests as a fox. And I think here in Psalm 133, understanding the similes is a key part in understanding the whole point about why it is that unity among brothers is good and pleasant. Because here in Psalm 133, the similes in verse 2 and verse 3, as we'll see, point to unity being a gift and a work of God first, and point to the purpose of that unity, giving testimony to God and offering refreshment To a dry and broken world. The first simile then is found in verse 2. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Brothers dwelling in unity is like oil on a beard. I suppose if you're a hipster, that makes sense to you. Not being one, I don't know what that means. And I'm not particularly fond of having myself covered in oil. But David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says that unity among brothers is like oil running down Aaron's head, pouring even onto his collar. And let's think about that. Brothers dwelling in unity is like the consecrating oil that is poured out upon Aaron to make him the first high priest in Israel. In Leviticus chapter 8, we see this ordination, this consecration of Aaron recorded as Moses, directed by God, takes oil and pours oil upon him. Aaron was set apart for service to God. And the oil was the mark of that setting apart, the mark of that consecration. Aaron was consecrated by God and at God's command for service to God. And that gives us a hint, I think, about what unity is for. First, it is by God's work, but then second, it is for a purpose. Well, what was Aaron's consecration for? Aaron was consecrated to be priest, the one who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people standing between God and, and, and the human worshipers. Aaron was the one who was, in a sense, to mediate God's presence. Is that what unity is for? Unity among the brothers. We don't have to go too far or work too hard to realize that, like Aaron, Israel was consecrated by God. Israel was chosen by God. Israel was set apart by God For God, with a purpose. In fact, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, God proclaims to the people of Israel, gathered at Mount Sinai, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God calling Israel to be his own. God setting Israel apart from the nations to be his own gives them a purpose. Like Aaron, the first high priest, he consecrates them so that they would be witnesses to the one they worship. Israel's calling is first found in Genesis chapter 12, where God makes a promise to a man named Abram. Later in the Genesis account, his name becomes Abraham. God says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That same basic promise was made to Abraham's son Isaac and to Isaac's son Jacob, brothers dwelling in unity, serves as witness and testimony to who they are and, more importantly, who they worship. The unity of God's people is a good and pleasant thing because it's the gift and the work of God. He's the one who sets apart and it testifies to Him. And the second simile is found in verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Admittedly, this is a uh, weird thing to say. Unity of God's people is like dew. Weird until we ask the question, what does dew do do? <laughs> In a dry and parched land, In the midst of a dry season when it does not rain, dew refreshes. Dew can be crop-saving. Dew can be life-saving as it can provide the much-needed refreshment of hydration. Perhaps then it is that unity among the people of God can be refreshment in a world that is broken and disconnected, parched from a lack of refreshing in community. Unity among God's people, providing, as it were, an oasis of new humanity, new humanity and community in the presence of God in the midst of a desert of tribalization and disconnection. There, in that consecrated and refreshing body of people united by God, life is found. There, in that oasis, life is found, as in the unity of God's people, as there is witness and testimony to life in God, refreshment of life among God's people can be received. And this wasn't just true for ancient Israel. It's true of the church, and it's true for the church. In the Gospel according to St. John, in the 17th chapter, Jesus, the night of his betrayal and arrest, the night before his crucifixion, prayed. And St. John records this prayer in the 17th chapter, and partway through the prayer, Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In this prayer the night before his death, Jesus prayed that his disciples, those at dinner with him that night, might be consecrated and set apart and might be unified. And then he says, I don't just pray for them, I pray for all who will come after them, that, uh, that they, like you and me, Dad, like the you connected, this intimate connection of, of oneness and unity, that they may be one also so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did we catch that? Did we catch the purpose behind unity, the purpose for unity? It is one of witness and testimony. Unity witnesses and testimonies to the glory and the reality of Jesus who came, died, rose, and ascended. And disunity tells the world that it's a lie. I wonder why then it's pleasant and good for the brothers to dwell in unity, because there is testimony to Jesus. Unity, the gift and the work of God for the purpose uh, of witness to God, and refreshment of the world around, that is to mark the church globally. That is to mark the church locally. And let's pause at this point to recognize that there is a real problem here. There's a real problem. If brothers dwelling in unity is good and pleasant, folks, why does it happen so rarely? Israel spent more time disconnected and disagreement, feuding amongst themselves than not. Heck, David's own immediate family didn't dwell in unity. The church throughout history in both its global and local iterations has at best a 50-50 record. And while the modern world is smaller and More globalized than ever, we recognize that humanity is tribalized along generational, political, ethnic, scientific, cultural, and religious lines to a degree that, quite frankly, is astounding. Leaving ancient Israel aside for a moment, let's consider the modern enemies of unity, both found in the secular waters in which we swim and within the church globally and locally. And so this doesn't become an us-against-them kind of sermon. So this doesn't become one of those sermons in which we point our fingers outside at the others, whether the others be those outside of the church or fellow church members with whom we disagree. Let's take up the challenge this morning of hearing these words in terms of ourselves. A dominant theme, a dominant enemy of unity is individualism. And in our our current 21st century, it's expressed primarily as a demand for personal preferences and found in generational differences. The demand that personal preferences be met is intimately linked to a consumerist mentality. Surrounded by choices, we are treated as consumers from womb to the tomb in every aspect of our lives. Every aspect. Burger King used the slogan, have it your way, for 40 years. The slogan perfectly encapsulates the cultural mood of postmodernism, which declared that all things, even truth, were subject to the consumer. It's the attitude where I proclaim, I want, I want what I want when I want it, and if I don't get what I want when I want it, well, I'll go somewhere else where I'll get what I want how I want, when I want it. That slogan also perfectly encapsulates the mindset of the capital vice of pride, in which the individual becomes paramount. Individual becomes almost God. preferences, everyone has them. And there really isn't necessarily anything wrong with that. The problem with preferences comes when we demand our preferences be met and when we have an attitude of entitlement about them, when we expect others to submit to our way of doing things. Preferences are fine when it comes to the art of making a hamburger. But this attitude, the consumerist demand for the fulfillment of consumer preferences, will kill friendships. It will destroy churches. And it does. The Burger King attitude, the consumerist demand of having it my way, uh, the demand for the fulfillment of personal preferences cannot help but disintegrate the unity of a church because we humans tribalize and align with those who share our preferences or at least those whose preferences we consider to be less offensive than others. The saddest part, the worst part, is that more often than not in churches, Personal preferences have nothing to do with salvation. They have nothing to do with theology or ecclesiology. The disintegration of unity within a local church comes more often than not because of a personal preference about something that isn't even on the radar on the ladder of importance. The disintegration of unity within a local church because of the color of carpet The color of the walls or the kind of music that is used to worship God is akin to a married couple getting a divorce because they can't agree on a brand of toothpaste. And here's here's where I must ask a really difficult question. One that I ask of myself and one that I must pose to all of us that we may ask ourselves the same difficult question. How do I... Break unity in the church by demanding the fulfillment of my personal preferences. Every one of us should ask ourselves that question. Do I have a consumerist mindset, a have-it-my-way attitude toward the church so that if things aren't done according to my desires, my wishes, my demands, I stay away, go away, or worse, I stay and grumble and complain? This destroys unity. And when this destroys unity, with it is destroyed the testimony to God the church is supposed to have and the refreshment offered to the world. In 2014, Burger King scrapped its 40-year-old slogan. Apparently, they found out that having it there your way uh, wasn't sufficient to defeat McDonald's, and so they modified it to be your way. Thank you, Burger King, because this slogan perfectly encapsulates the cultural mood that has set in after postmodernism. Despite the change, Burger King has still managed to perfectly encapsulate the mindset of pride. Have it my way, be my way. I get to determine who I am. I get to identify myself, my truth, my reality in any way I see fit. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong. I'll do me, you do you, and if you don't like it, well, you're an intolerant, phobic bigot. That's the attitude. Be your way. In my 40 years of life, I've never seen such dramatic generational divide as we see now, or at least as the media of every social and political view wants us to see it. Maybe I'm naive, unobservant, or just plain blind, but I simply can't remember a time in which self-proclaimed definitions within generations have created such a difficult context. Adults with experience ought to have the wisdom to be able to listen well and remember their own questioning and questing youth. Younger generations ought to be able to recognize that there are things they do not yet know or understand. And yet, rather than deal with real people on a real level, We content ourselves to wail away at stereotypes, assume the worst, and demand acquiescence to our generational experience. Here's where I must ask a difficult question of myself, and one that I pose to all of us, that we may ask ourselves the same question. How do I break unity in the church by demanding the fulfillment of my generational expectations? In culture, this results in angry people further divided, further tribalized with the exclusion of the other to the detriment of the whole. And if this happens in the church, this results in a monogenerational church that will ultimately die, and with it, it's testimony to God and it's refreshment that it's supposed to offer the world. As we've seen, unity is a great thing. David says it is good and pleasant. But as we've seen, our own sin and the cultural waters in which we swim encourage us away from true unity and toward division and disintegration. So then, what's the solution? Is there a solution? Or are we trapped in some Don Quixote-esque quest tilting at windmills? Is it possible that unity, as God desires for his people, is truly available? If this kind of unity, consecrated and refreshing unity of witness and testimony, is God's intention and his ideal for this new creation, kingdom people, how is it possible? Let's recognize something from Psalm 133. Let's recognize something about the unity that David describes. It cannot be found independently of God. Aaron was consecrated. He was set apart as priest by God and for God. Dew falls on a dry and parched land as a gift from God. Aaron didn't consecrate himself, and no one but God can truly make it rain. By extension, this type of unity can only be found in the new era under the new covenant in Jesus. Jesus is the one around whom unity is found because it is Jesus who makes us brothers and sisters in Christ, part of the family of God. As St. Paul states in Galatians chapter four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Made family by Jesus, then unity is found in Jesus even between Jew and Gentile, Democrats and Republicans, Boomers and Millennials. This family connection, this holy unity is first a grace of God as such. Holy unity is the work of God in Jesus Christ. We recognize first unity is the work of God. And we recognize that unity never means uniformity. True unity, in fact, incorporates a wide degree of diversity. True unity is found when a diverse group of people, a group of individuals of different racial and cultural backgrounds, differing generations and experiences, differing educational levels and jobs, even differing political parties and favorite college football teams are brought together and formed into a single living body by a common identity, mission, and purpose. We, as St. Paul has proclaimed, have been adopted into God's family as children in, through, and by Jesus, and how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. The achievement of unity has less to do with us than we might imagine, but there is much for us to do in keeping and in protecting unity. The imperative tends to follow the indicative in Scripture. What I mean by that is that The command follows the fact. So often in Scripture, it is declared who the people of God are, and then it is declared what the people of God are to do. Jesus' people are declared to be the family of God, then they are to live that way in unity. And so it is that in the power of the Holy Spirit, God's people in Jesus Christ are called to maintain and protect unity, precisely because it is a witness and a refreshment to the world that needs it. And we are called to protect it because there's a whole host of ways in which our unity can be fragile. And if we're not careful, we find that we attack the unity of our church by demanding our personal preferences. We find that we attack the church by bringing in fractures along generational lines. And we find that the devil delights... In that. So how is this unity, this gift of God, protected and expressed so that we might be witnesses to God and refreshment to the world? How can we do our part to combat the forces of personal preference and generational disintegration? You probably will recognize these words. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell In unity. There it is where witness is given to God. Jesus, as crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, is exalted. Refreshment to the world around us is extended. The church is to be unified and thus have a consecrated testimony and offer refreshment. Unity of being is found in Christ, and we must work to maintain and protect that unity in the power of the Holy Spirit by actively loving one another, as St. Paul defines. A gift and work of God for the purpose of witness to Him, and refreshment of the world. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. I've said this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Yeah.